0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, thank you for saving us in King Jesus. We remember your grace. So that we might remember our mission to reach our world, to know, love, and live for Jesus as we long for the day of his return. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've heard of the term mission drift. Mission Drift. In a 2014 book, a man called Peter Greer and his friend Chris Horse wrote a book titled Mission Drift: The Unspoken Crisis Facing Leaders charities, and churches. I want you to hear what they warn in their book. Quote, without careful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. It's that simple. It will happen. Now, when you stop and think about it, that's true not just of faith-based organizations, isn't it? It's true of any organization, any club, any collective we start off with a clear mission in mind, but as time goes on, we gradually drift away from it. Instead of looking outwards to our mission, no, we start looking inwards to preserve our own comfort and security. This is what Greer and Horst write in their book. Effective organizations, quote, know why they exist and protect their core at all costs. They define what is immutable their values and purpose, their DNA, their heart and soul. Did you catch that? Effective organizations and effective leaders know why they exist. Uh, Some of you uh, may have seen that famous TED talk entitled Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And in that talk, Sinek says that, quote, the inspired leaders and organizations all think, act and communicate From the why, to the how, to the what. Why am I doing something? How am I doing it? What am I doing? Because Cynic, and who's not a Christian, this is what he says about leadership. People don't buy what you do. People buy why you do it. Don't sell me a product, sell me a vision. So if you want to avoid mission drift, if you want to be an effective leader, if you want to be effective in what you do, Cynic says, start with why. In today's passage, Joshua wants Israel to remain faithful to God, and he wants them to stay true to their mission, to restore this world to everything that it was meant to be. And so here in Joshua 24, we find in his final words, in his dying words, a TED talk of his own. And just like Sinek says, Joshua starts with why. In this passage, Joshua reminds Israel of their mission. And he actually reminds us of our mission. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved to serve. You've been one for worship. Act six, conquest. But before we go any further, before we look at these final words, let's take stock of where we're at in the story of God. You see, over the last two weeks, God has been fulfilling His every promise to Abraham to restore this world to everything that it was meant to be. God's people living in God's kingdom with God as their king. Do you remember? Two weeks ago, God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And just last week, he made a covenant with them, a covenant, a relationship where they will be his people and he will be their king. And in Numbers, a book that we didn't get to look at, we read that actually God leads Israel to the edge of the promised land. It's exciting. He's about to fulfill the last third of his promise. And my gosh. After he does, after this, Israel will be online and ready to go, ready to fulfill their mission for God in the world. But at the 11th hour, on the cusp of victory, what happens? Instead of choosing faith, Israel chooses fear. They look at the people in Canaan and they're afraid. And so what they do is they reject the promises of God. And they refuse to enter the promised land. They see the competitive market as it were. And suddenly, they suffer mission drift. They forget why God redeemed them. They forget why He made a covenant with them. And so they turn in on themselves and refuse to enter the land. They refuse to be the people God called them to be. They refuse to commit to the mission God saved them to fulfill. And it's tragic. Just like every organization which loses their way, like every organization which goes bust and defunct, well, Israel quite literally loses its way. God condemns them to wander the Sinai wilderness for 40 years, 40 long years where the entire Exodus generation dies. Do you remember back to the act where we looked at the fall, God would have been well within his rights to wipe out and give up on humanity then. And yet again, God would be well within his rights to give up on Israel now. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up on Israel. He honors his promise. In fact, he extends his promise to their children. The generation born in the wilderness, the next generation led by a new leader, not Moses, but Joshua. And throughout this book of Joshua, we see Joshua who leads Israel to recover their mission. He leads them to do what their fathers failed to do, to be the people that God saved them to be, to fulfill the mission that he called them to fulfill. Finally, Joshua leads this new generation of Israelites into the promised land to restore this broken world. And now... By the time we land at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 24, all of God's promises are fulfilled. I mean, I love this there in Joshua 23, 45. It's as if, if you remember back to Genesis 12, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And this is what we read. None of the good promises the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. Get these three words. Everything. Was fulfilled. It's wonderful, isn't it? Everything was fulfilled. At long last, God's people live in his kingdom with Yahweh as their king. And in these final words, Joshua wants Israel to remain faithful to their God. He wants them to stay the course. He wants them to cleave to their mission. He wants them to guard against mission drift. And so what does he do? He starts with why. He looks to the past so that Israel might look to their future. He looks to their past so that Israel might look to their future. Part one, looking back. Well, as Joshua looks back on his life, he recounts Israel's history. And look where he starts. He starts all the way back with Abraham. It helps to have your Bibles in front of you at this point. It's as if he's going back to the beginning to remind Israel of their origin story, to remind them of how the story began. He traces Israel's story from the promise God made to Abraham, to the redemption and the covenant that he made with Moses, all the way now to the conquest that he's fulfilling through Joshua. But notice, in verses 1 to 13, these verses aren't just any retelling of Israel's history. No, Joshua has a focus. He focuses on the promise of land, that last third of God's promise to Abraham. He doesn't focus on God's promise to create a people for himself. He doesn't focus on God's promise to rule over them as king. No, he focuses on God's promise to bring us home. It's as if Joshua is saying to Israel, guys, look back. Look back on our story, look back on the map, and look at how far we've come. So, here's what I want to do I want to track that journey with you from verses 1 to 13. We'll trace it together, and as we do, I want you to notice that in almost every one of these 13 verses, Joshua mentions a land, a river, or a place. I was never much good at geography, but I can deal with words. And so let's go on this journey with Israel. It starts in verses 2 and 3. God, he, he finds Abraham in Shechem, beyond the Euphrates, and he takes him beyond from beyond the river and leads him throughout the land of Canaan. Verse 4. He gives Esau the hill country of Seir, but Jacob goes down to Egypt. In verses 5 and 6, then God sends Moses and Aaron to bring Israel, there it is, out of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. In verse 7, he saves them through the waters of the Red Sea, and they live in the wilderness a long time. Understatement of the Old Testament. In verse 8, God brings them to the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan, and there they possessed the land. In verse 11, he leads them across the Jordan and brings them to the great city of Jericho. And finally, in verse 13, God finally gives them a land you did not labor for, and cities you did not build. It's as if God is painting a picture of Israel's journey and he wants them to see, look at how far we've come. That the journey started with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. At 3, in a place called Shechem. Well, guess what, guys? Look where we are now. Look generations later where we now stand. Verse 1, right there, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Finally, God has brought us home. Look at how far we've come. Look at all that God has done. I mean, did you notice everything that God has done for his people? Look at those verbs. He took them, led them, gave them, sent them, brought them out and rescued them. The only way that Israel ever came so far is not by their own works, but by grace and grace alone. From beginning to end, Abraham to Joshua, promise to conquest, Shechem all the way back to Shechem. Yahweh led them every step of the way. And it's not as if God saved them because they deserved it. It's not as if he came and chose Abraham because he deserved it. No, he reached down and plucked him out of idolatry. Look at verse 2. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. You see, when we're at Genesis 12, we might be tempted to think, oh, there must have been something special about Abraham that God would choose him. There must have been something virtuous or righteous or blessed about Abraham that made him merit or deserve God's election, God's choice. But here, Joshua 24 verse 2 puts a nail in that coffin. No, Abraham was an idolater. God didn't choose someone who deserved to be blessed. If anything, if Genesis 3 is anything to go by, if the fall is anything to go by, no, God chose someone just like us. He chose someone who deserved to be cursed. But out of sheer grace, God reached down and plucked, not a rose among the thorns, but a thorn among the thistles the unloving, the undeserving, the undesirable. From Genesis 12 all the way to this point, Yahweh has saved Israel through three great waters. In verse 3, through Abraham, he saved Israel out of idolatry from beyond the Euphrates River. In verse 7, through Moses, he saved Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea. And in verse 8, through Joshua, he saved Israel out of the wilderness through the Jordan River. In many ways, when we get baptized, this is what we're remembering. God has always saved his people through the waters. Through the waters of the Euphrates River. Through the waters of the Red Sea. Through the waters uh, of the Jordan River. And when we get baptized, we celebrate the fact that we've been saved through the waters as well. And friends, all of this is motivated by grace upon grace upon grace. If we didn't get it, if we didn't understand it, verse 13 puts it up there in spotlights, doesn't it? I gave you a land you did not labor for and cities you did not build, though you live in them. You are eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Friends, can't you see? Look back. Look at how far we've come. Look at all that God has done. And at the end of his life, Joshua wants Israel to look back. He retells God's story so that Israel remembers God's grace. I wonder, how often do you look back and remember the story of God? How often do you look back and remember the grace of God? How often do you remember the Father's amazing grace which reached down and plucked you out of idolatry? How often do you remember the Son's atoning blood by which you were redeemed out of sin? How often do you look back and remember the Spirit's effectual call which seals your salvation and your covenant relationship with this God? We love looking forward, don't we? We love planning for our future. But so often God actually calls us, just stop for a moment. Pause. Take a breather. And look back. When was the last time you stopped and did just that? That you reflected on your life and you marveled to yourself? Wow. Look at how far I've come. Look at all that God has done. I know one of you was telling me a few months ago, you're not quite sure that you've seen much change in your heart. I remember last year talking to some of you guys and you were saying that I don't desire God, but I want to desire God. Does that make sense? I don't love God, but I want to love God. You know what? I was talking with some of the same people not that long ago and you were saying, I genuinely love him. That's change. That's amazing. And God wants you to look back and remember on all those moments of change where He's been working in your heart, starting with the gospel where He saved you. Do you remember what it was like to hear the gospel for the very first time? Do you remember what it was like to have your life revolutionized by God's word? Do you remember what it was like to realize the heights of God's holiness, the depths of our depravity, and the greatness of His grace? Do you remember the day that you trusted in Jesus? I mean, I don't, but I'll tell you what I do remember. Do you remember the day that you were baptized into His family? God wants us, friends, to retell His story so that we might remember His grace. So often we come to the sermon each Sunday wanting to learn something new, a new idea, a new angle, a new perspective. But this passage shows us that we actually need to be reminded of something old, unchanging truths of our unchanging God. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. You know, at the end of our lives, we will not need to have known many truths shallowly. We will only have needed to know a few truths deeply. Part two, looking forward, looking forward. Well, in verses 1 to 13, Joshua looked back. He reminded us that we've been saved. And now in verses 14 to 28, he looks forward and tells us why we've been saved. And here it is. Here's our mission, friends. We've been saved to serve. We have been one for worship. Joshua, he retells God's story, not just for the heck of nostalgia. No, but to remember his grace, to motivate his mission. And in these verses, Joshua renews Israel's covenant with God. He reaffirms their commitment to each other and he calls Israel to recommit themselves to God and his mission. Look with me at verse 14. I love these verses. Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you, To worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River or, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. It's wonderful, isn't it? A challenge of all challenges. No less than six times in these verses does Joshua use that word, Worship. Friends, we've been saved to serve. We have been one for worship. Believe it or not, and it might surprise you to realize this, the ultimate purpose of the gospel is not our salvation. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is not that we escape judgment. I mean, that's good. It's true. But going to heaven, as good as it is, is not the point of the story of God. No, the height The apex, the summit of this story, is the glory of God and our worship of him. We have been one for worship. Do you remember that's why God created Adam? It's why he redeemed Israel and it's why he saved us in Jesus. So that we, as actors on the stage of history, might share and reflect the glory of our author that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Some of you, if you grew up in church in the late 90s or early 2000s like me, might know of a song called Above All. If you've heard me on this rant before, I sincerely apologize and you'll have to hear it again. I want you to hear the lyrics of its chorus. I'm not going to sing it. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you live to die rejected and alone. Like a rose, trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me, me, above all. Me? He thought of me above all? Now, I'm not the ultimate point. Sorry to say, you're not the ultimate point. This is not the story of me. This is the story of God. The goal of all things is the glory of God. That's what he thought of above all. And we get to share in that. But we are not the point of this story. That is the purpose for which we've been saved. We've been one to worship Christ as king. But did you notice right there in verse 14? Idolatry has crept back into Israel. Idols from back beyond the river, idols from the land of Canaan, the gods of the Amorites. The Amorites were the people who lived in Canaan. That's why Joshua now challenges Israel, choose for yourselves today, who will you worship? Will you worship the false gods of your father, your culture and your world? Or will you worship Yahweh, the one true God? Now, before you make your choice, remember this. Remember everything he's done for you. Look back. Remember how he redeemed you out of slavery to Egypt. Remember how he made a covenant with you in love. Now choose him. Serve him. Obey him. Worship him. He is the God who saved you, so he is the God whom you must serve. He is the God who won you, so he is the God whom you must worship. He alone is worthy of all praise, all glory, all, wi- all wisdom, and all strength. The question that Joshua asked Israel is the question that he asks you and me today. Friends, choose for yourselves today. Who will you worship? If you're not a Christian, can I say, this is the very question that Christianity and the gospel and the Bible poses to you. Who will you worship? The truth is we all worship something. But the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only God who will never let you down. Boss is the only one true God. All the other so-called gods are false gods who fail. Who will you worship this day? Don't get it wrong. It's the choice of your life. What about for us believers? Well, if Israel bowed the knee before the gods of Canaan, I worry that all too often we bow our knee before the God of comfort. The truth is, many of us in our lives right now are making significant uh, decisions for the future. How should we plan for our retirement? How should we plan for our marriage? How should we sell our home or how should we buy our first home? What degree should I study? What job should I pursue? When should we have kids? What sort of schooling should we send them to? Homeschool, private school, public school. There's so many options. There's so many decisions. And I hate to say it, but when I think about it, it's all too easy for us to make decisions and live as if we were back beyond the river. We talk and speak like genuine believers, but we live like practical pagans. We say we worship our king, but the truth is we just worship our comfort. We build our lives based on what maximizes security, what minimizes risk, what enlarges our comfort, what earns us the most money or what wins us the most approval. And it's only after we first prioritise our financial, our material, and our familial needs and benefits, we then ask the question, well, where can God fit into all of this in my life? Where can God fit into my life? It's remarkable, isn't it? And almost slightly offensive, ungrateful for the grace lavished on us by a generous and loving God. When we look back and see all that God has done for us, we then go... What shall I do with my life? Friends, look back. This is the God who saved us. And he saved us not so that we can fit him into our lives or work him into our schedules. No, he saved us so that he might be the master of our fates and the captain of our souls. It's tragic. Where does God fit into my life? Mate, it's not your life. And it's not mine either. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I don't want you to see as a burden, but a radical blessing. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism says that it's our only comfort in life and in death, that we belong with both body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. I am not my own. That is the best news you'll ever hear. The question for each and every one of us today is this. How can I live my life wholly devoted to the mission of God? How can I be fully committed to advancing his gospel in this world? How can it be spent and exhausted in service of the God who saved me? Will I truly, wholly, completely, deeply worship Him? Then, and only then, will we play our part in the story of God. Then and only then will we be actors on the arena of this world. Then and only then will we be mirrors of the glory of God. Will we be everything that God saved us and created us to be? Mirrors that don't just reflect his glory. Actors that share his glory. You know, our worship of the Lord needs to not just shape it, but radically determine and dictate every part of our lives. Do we worship the Lord in our marriages, choosing who to marry, not just based on compatibility, though that's necessary, but based on their love for the Lord and their passion for his glory? Do we worship the Lord in our living, buying our first home based on its closeness to the people of God and using our home for the service of God's people. To welcome others just as God has welcomed us in Jesus. Do we worship the Lord in our studies and our work? Here's a radical thought. To choose your degree and your career that makes God's mission our greatest ambition. Do we worship the Lord in our parenting? Raising our children to make them more holy than happy. Sacrificial than successful ambitious for God than ambitious for self. And for many of you here, I want to suggest, and it's not just some, but many, I want to suggest that truly worshipping the Lord will mean giving up your career to serve Him in full-time gospel ministry. It's not for everyone, but it is for some of you. And if it is, worship the Lord. And if you're engaged or married to one such person, don't be a handbrake on your spouse's ministry. You will worship the Lord by supporting them to sacrifice, by encouraging them to go, by partnering with them to serve. Choose for yourselves this day. Who will you worship? We've been saved to serve. We've been one for worship, not ourselves, but Christ our King. The people of Israel, they heed Joshua's call. They look back on the story of God and this is what they declare. And I wonder, will you declare it with them today? We will worship the Lord. Why? Because he is our God. It's beautiful. This story could stop right there and we'd go away feeling great, wouldn't we? God's people finally respond as they ought. Finally, God's promises are fulfilled. But at the end of this positive, optimistic book, a shadow is cast. And Joshua says something very strange. He tells Israel that they are destined to fail. Imagine that. What a downer. Will you worship the Lord? We will. No, you won't. Because look, at that's exactly what he says in verse 19. You will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. You see, friends, even though God's every promise has been fulfilled, even though Israel is finally God's people living in his kingdom with Yahweh as their king, still the problem of sin remains. And as long as our hearts are full of sin, we will never be able to worship the Lord or serve him as we must. Our every effort will be tainted by sin. And so what should be a happy ending to a long journey ends up being a bittersweet beginning to yet another chapter. At face value, everything is just as it should be. But there is a dark underbelly to the climax of this story. Because in Judges 2 verse 10, which is the next book, this is what we read. After Joshua's generation, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he'd done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And here's the kicker. They worshiped the Baals. Really? God saved them for service. He won them for worship. But for him, not for the Baals, no mission drift strikes again. A new generation fails to look back. They fail to retell the story of God. They fail to remember the grace of God. They fail to worship Christ as King. You know, friends, we planted our church with a mission to reach our world, to know, love, and live for Jesus. That's our why. If you want to know what our why is, that's it. And we live every day for that why. Not just on Sundays, but every day of our lives, we live for this why. This is the mission of every Christian believer. It's the mission of every church, because at heart, it's the mission of God. It's the story of God. The story of God is that God is reaching every tribe on earth that they might know, love, and live for his son. It's the mission God had for Israel then, and it's the mission God has for us, his church today, that we might lead this world, every tribe, to worship Christ as king. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that mission. Because the truth is, it's now more than ever that the temptation for mission drift is so great. You know, as we re enter lockdown, we'll be tempted to hit the pause button on mission, to tread water but not advance, to survive but not thrive, to maintain but not progress. It'll be easy for us to get all too comfortable, to find church online so convenient that we may never physically return. And one difference I'm feeling in round two of lockdown is that we're not just comfortable, but we're tired. And so it's all too easy and comfortable for us to not even attend church online. But friends, there is a right sense in which we should not be comfortable. Comfort is the killer for the mission of God. We need to stay uncomfortable because this right now is not how it's meant to be. We were created by God and recreated in Christ to be together. And the best way for us to keep our eyes on the mission of God is to continually and collectively choose to worship Christ as King. So as we re-enter these six weeks of lockdown, I want to ask you this question, not just individually, but for us as a church. And in our discussion groups after this, we'll have a time to answer this question together. Let's choose for ourselves today. Whom will we worship? Don't. Worship your comfort. Worship your king. Remember the story of God. Remember the grace of God. Remember the mission of God. Because in Jesus, we have been saved to serve. We have been one for worship. Look back to God's story. Look forward to God's mission. And then... We will be everything that God has called us, created us and saved us to be. We will be God's people living in God's kingdom with God as our king. Act 6, conquest. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for saving us in Jesus Christ. We remember your grace so that we might remember our mission to reach our world to know, love and live for Jesus as we long for the day of his return. Amen.